0: Welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne and I'll be your host on the show, talking to landscape photographers about their motivations, likes and dislikes. This podcast is sponsored by Syncback Pro, the professional photographer's tool to keep your images safe. How safe are your photographs? Or to put it this way, how would you feel if you permanently lost some or even all of them? The fact is, there are very real risks in storing your digital images on a hard drive, even if they're backed up to an external device. There's ransomware, hardware failure, file corruption, virus infection, and even accidental deletion or destruction. SyncBack Pro makes this problem go away permanently. SyncBack Pro is the professional photographer's tool to back up photographs, images, documents and data files. Once set up, it keeps your files safe, quietly and reliably in the background. So if problems occur, or disaster strikes, you'll have nothing to worry about. Your photographs will be safe. Which is why it's also the backup solution that I use myself for my own photographs. Take advantage of an exclusive 25% discount today by going to www.backup.sg. The software will never expire, meaning your photographs are safe forever. That's www.backup.sg. Give your photographs the protection they deserve. And now, on with the show. With a passion for people, places and pictures, and an instinctive sense of the moment, Tony Hewitt brings a combination of creative vision, award-winning photography, and simple creativity. One of Western Australia's preeminent landscape photographers, Tony has been at the forefront of the landscape genre for many years. A qualified master of neuro-linguistic programming, he's also co-authored a series of nine books which stimulate and service the growing demand for the area of lifestyle and well-being. His innate philosophies on photography and creativity, together with a broad skill set in the areas of personal and interpersonal communication, make him a very interesting guest. Tony's photographic journey has seen him explore the genres of fine art, landscape, portrait and commercial photography. He's exhibited both within Australia and internationally and has been invited to judge both nationally and internationally since 1995. We discuss his approach to creativity in his work, the importance of communication for photographers and much more. I hope you enjoy the show. G'day Tony, welcome to Landscape Photography World. How's your day going?
1: It's very good thanks mate. Just starting off with a bit of a cold wind outside but as I said to you earlier I do enjoy that so that's fine.
0: Nice. So I'm really pleased to have you on the show. It's You've been in, in my sights for a little while. Why don't you tell people that don't know because it, it, I'm lucky enough to have a fairly international audience so there's people from the US and Canada and the UK that I know listen and also New Zealand of course so there might be some people out there that haven't heard of you I know most of the Aussies will probably know your work why don't you tell them who you are and why you got started in landscape photography
1: I started in wedding photography strangely enough about not that strange I suppose a lot of photographers do but that was going back over 30 years ago Yep. And uh, I did that for A Thousand Weddings, which was a good oh, ground, grounding in training on the job, if you like, because anyone who's done weddings would know you're pretty much getting training in everything from fashion to landscape, to food, to jewellery, to people, to portrait, to documentary, yeah. etc. So that kept me going. And of course, in that field, you have to do the job, whether it's raining, whether it's windy, whether it's hot, whatever it is, you've got to do it. So you become a very good at problem solving in terms of photography. Sure, You get used to gear that, fails you. You have to figure ways around all that. So it's a really good training ground. That evolved into a portrait business. A lot of our early portrait business and ongoing portrait business came out of that wedding base that we had. Mm -hmm. And along the way, I was picking up commercial work. So first 15, 20 years, I suppose, there was a good mix of wedding portrait, commercial, and like many photographers, even today, but certainly back then, when you went traveling, you like the idea of shooting a bit of landscape and a bit of travel, which I did. And uh, sort of about the mid to early 2000s, I started taking more interest in landscape. When I was traveling, I was looking at how I could produce things that might go on a wall. I was inspired by the people like the like Ken Duncans of the world, Steve Parrish. And then mid to later in the 2000s, I Came across people like Christian, who has become a a very close friend. That's Christian Fletcher.
2: Yep, yep.
1: And that kind of kept me looking at how landscape worked and how it was something I could do for myself, whereas Wedding Portrait was very much about photographing for other people. Although you're bringing yourself to the job or to the project, you've still got in mind what do they want, what are they looking for, because it's going on their walls and it's about them. Whereas Landscape was a little bit more about this is how I see the world, this is my world, this is what I like and I don't have to photograph what I don't like. Yeah. And so it's interesting when we think of landscape in terms of documenting or recording something versus landscape as a ex- form of expression, if you like. Yeah. And uh, we'll probably get into the conversation around his photography art a little later, but for me, it was always, landscape was always more than just recording because I was always in a space where I was taking photographs of something that it was more about how I was feeling about, where I was rather than I'm there for a purpose to to take back a particular record.
2: Yeah, sure, sure. So,
1: yeah, that moved me into landscape and then very quickly it evolved into trying to produce landscapes that were a little different and a little more expressive. I've always had an interest in the arts in terms of painting. So people like Monet, Turner, Peace, these sort of artists and legends, they inspired me as to it. it was more than what I see. There's more to it than just what's in front of you. and then having the privilege of mixing with other photographers along the way but yeah that that kind of led me to where I am today where I exhibit I've had whatever 10 or 11 solos I work with a gallery called Linton and K, which have several spaces and every couple of years we do an exhibition and I've done a few bigger ones solo projects such as Girt by Sea and things like that and of course I've been heavily involved over the last 25 years in in awards programs around the world within Australia, certainly, but also overseas, both in terms of an entrant and then through to judging and chairing, judging and running competitions and coordinating and things like that. So it also exposed me, exposes me to lots of different things, trends, different styles, genres and ways that people approach different types of photography. So pretty blessed in the influences I've had around me. And as a result, my work now is very much it's where I've come to in photography, but it's also what I've brought with me is who I am as a person and what I liked as a kid sure. my strengths in mathematics and science and music all come through in my work, or at least I hope they do and a lot yeah. of people recognize that. and yeah, so by the way, Grant, you'll know I can talk so <laughs> I'll try to keep the answers short. <laughs> oh,
0: uh, you don't need to. This is a long-form podcast. And I'm more than happy. I kind of aim for about an hour-ish, but okay. I've had plenty that go well over the hour, and maybe it's not a problem. It's down to the listener whether or not they're, they're yeah, engaged right, or not. They can not. turn
1: it off, can't they?
0: <laughs> that's exactly it. I'm here all ears. I'm definitely keen to, keen to delve a little bit deeper into the motivational and inspirational side of things. And... I guess for me, it's really around what is it about the landscape that sort of engages that creativity for you? As you've said, it already started as, I guess, more of an art form and something that's more expressive than just recording your travels and so forth. What is it that makes you go, okay, that makes a good shot. That's really makes me feel something. How do you take that expression of how you're feeling and put that into what you're, what you're trying to capture?
1: Well, I think what I've discovered over the years is that there's an innate part of each of us that wants to be heard. And it's about, it involves things like pattern recognition and code breaking. I know that might yep. sound weird, but Looking at the landscape and it involves phenomenons like pareidolia where we look at clouds and we see rabbits and horses. I think for me, when I'm looking, our brain, see the thing is that our brain does the seeing, not our eyes. The eyes is just an instrument, like a lens that captures information, but the brain interprets that information and does all the seeing. And the seeing is based on what's already in our brain. A newborn baby has very little things to for pattern recognition or for identifying or recognizing shapes, so it develops that in the early days That's why they learn so quick but we through our growing up as we mature as human beings as we grow we have experiences that keep getting put in our brain whether we're conscious of them or not We they're all going in there and when we're looking around and looking at a new environment new landscape often when we travel somewhere to for the first time we get inspired because we see things that we haven't seen before but that art of seeing if you like is based on recognizing certain shapes and patterns and things that that resonate for us and they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder and I think that's a lot of what I'm talking about not just beauty but recognizing symbols that mean something to us but may not mean something to other people obviously Mm -hmm. a lot of the people who do know of my work would be familiar with my aerial work and the aerial art that I try to produce and a lot of that is based around recognizing shapes and symbols and patterns that are iconic that have got archetypal references a cross is a cross a tree is a tree and people go up and just about anyone who goes up on the plane will see those shapes and go oh look there it is
2: yeah yeah. and
1: then we use that as a platform to tell stories or to insinuate stories about something else get people thinking of other things when they're looking Mm -hmm. at one thing they're thinking of something else and then if you bring into play the value of color harmonies how colours affect emotion, and when you start looking into that, like what red does to people, what blue does to people. Yep. In simplistic terms, we say blues calm people down, reds are fiery and passionate and energetic. Yeah, so it's when you start in, yep. Yeah, all of that comes into it. So when yep. you start adding that into your photography, or at least consciously adding it into your photography. So a lot of my work is simple. If you look at it and break it down, it's got simple compositions. Central compositions are quite common with my work. Square. Minimal colours. There's not forty-four thousand colours in it. It might have two or three main colours. All of these things are deliberate. Not so much is that I go out to create them, but I recognise them when I see them. So I think the aerial process or the aerial photography experience is one where, and particularly out of planes and helicopters or hot air balloons versus drones, you're up there. You can see it all in front of you, and you can select the areas that you think, "Wow, that caught my attention." Yeah. What is it about that caught my attention? Can I put a frame around it? Can I express it in a way that other people start to understand what it was that I resonated with, what it was that it made me think of, and so on. So that's why I think the parallels, and I'm not saying I've got the talent of a Matisse or a Monet, but the parallels in terms of looking at that work and going, I know what I'm looking at, even though it doesn't look precisely and realistically like that. Yeah. but it makes me think of this and it makes me feel this way and I enjoy that yeah,
0: yeah. no that's great when you talking about in particular aerial photography that pattern recognition and as you said code breaking for me certainly comes into it I know I've had a, a fairly lengthy career at Qantas not as a no. pilot but talking to a lot of people that flew and pilots and flight engineers and so forth It's interesting that one of the examinations for becoming a pilot is pattern recognition because if you're doing visual reference flying then you need to recognize those patterns on the ground to help you navigate and so a key part of that aerial experience I think and for the passengers as well when they're flying through the air I know I love to do it I sit in a window seat whenever I can and Mm -hmm. I'm always looking oh yeah I know where I am because that's Dubbo or that's Brisbane or whatever as I'm flying over them and you do that through that pattern recognition so I think that's definitely really an important part of how people see the world and perceive that emotion and the emotional attachment to some of those things that they recognize so i think you're right on the money with that
1: yeah look most things in when you talk about music and music art photography poetry even just narratives it's all about communication it's all about expressing something or sharing something so that another party or another group of people can receive some information or receive, and that information can be in the form of factual, it could be in the form of an emotional type content feeling and understanding the language of what, of understanding the language of the communication medium we're using is really a powerful tool. Understanding what color does, understanding what contrast yeah. does, understanding what sharpness or hue or softness does. What does that do to the emotion? How does that change yeah. the way the person interprets what they're looking at uh, if you think of a bride and you say a bride on her day being soft and angelic etc then you're not thinking of high contrast heavy blacks you're thinking of high key lightweight similar if you think of a you say the most beautiful uh, sunsets we don't think of heavy clouds we think of bright vibrant pinks and yellows and oranges or we think of soft oranges and yellows and muted tones but there's something about the colors. There's something about the actual physical element of the picture. Is it sharp and contrasting and lots of heavy lines? Because I think of, if someone wants me to think of a dreamy sunset, I don't want to see too many heavy lines like sharp buildings and things. I want to see soft curved lines. I remember yeah. years ago talking to a plastic surgeon who did things like little, some of the little things they did would be cutting out skin cancers. Yeah. And he said, even though that the area might need just a straight cut, when they do it they cut in a curve or a S shape because he said when people look at a straight line on a face even if it's quite small they recognize it's that as being natural yeah. It, yeah, yeah it's incongruous so they basically straight away go oh i can see the scar but if it's got a bit of a curve like nature like a wrinkle or something mm. we don't notice it because our brain filters it out it's said that our brain can take in it takes in a couple of million to a billion pieces of information every second i know that sounds incomprehensible but it We're taking in information so much, but we can only consciously comprehend seven pieces of information, give or take it too. That's what they say. So at any one moment in time, we can only be actually consciously thinking about certain things. So our brain's filtering stuff out. So in the case of the scar, the brain goes, that's natural, doesn't even notice it. But if it was a sharp line, even if it's only a centimeter, we see the scar. So taking that principle into our photography, whether it's aerial based or whether we're looking at a portrait of a family, If there are things in the photograph that are distracting, albeit they be small, then they are going to contribute to the experience of the viewer. And it's incumbent upon us as the creator of the image to decide, do we want that distraction in there or not? Um, People talk about real pictures of places, take a landscape photo and there's a bin. You've been there three times and the third time you go to this location, they put in a bin or a sign and you take it out. And someone says, oh, that's not real. It's, It's not real, but my experience of this place, there's no sign in it. It's not what I go yeah. there for. It's not what I see.
0: Yeah, it's not what I'm looking at. I'm looking no. past the sign.
1: Yeah, and I want you to see the reason I came here and I didn't come here to photograph the sign or the bin. Got it. Yeah. But if we're talking about documenting a place for the purpose of a narrative around, hey, look how we stuff up beautiful places by putting bins and signs in, or we're promoting the fact that we should be using bins to get rid of the rubbish, then, yeah, you want it in there as a record. So I yeah. think the purpose and intent of the of the capture has got a lot to do with it. And I think the integrity of the photographer or the creator to let us know what you're looking at is factual or what you're looking at is my experience and my expression of what I saw. That's yeah. the important thing.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. You mentioned communications. Mm. How much of your success do you attribute to your ability to communicate well? <laughs>
1: I think just about all of it, to be honest. <laughs> I, I have a background in neurolinguistic programming, which is around yeah. the way uh, way we interpret our world, if you like, keeping it simple mm-hmm. and being a like a public speaker since 1990s in everything from communication to rapport skills. And, and for 10 years, I used to train rapport skills to bank boards and nursing federations and rangers and accounting firms and things like that. I used to go in there and do training programs yep. around that because... People get upset when they say something to somebody and that person doesn't understand. And the fact is, unless we take responsibility for the interpretation of what we say, we give up the power. What I mean by that is a terminology I learned through one of the instructors that I studied under was that the meaning of our communication is the response that we get. If we show, if we say something to somebody and they respond in a way that we don't expect, it's because what they took away from what we said isn't what we meant, and that's on yeah, us. Yeah. If we blame them and you say, oh, you idiot, that's not what I meant.
0: Yeah, you misinterpreted you know, me instead of... Then you've given give away the you power.
1: Know. You've got to hold on and say, hang on, what do I have to say for you to understand what I want you to understand? Yeah. Now, if we bring that to photography, if we show someone people put a picture in an award and they get upset that the judges don't get it, the judges are responding to what they say. And if they don't get it and you blame the judges, then you've just basically cut off the only way you can grow. The way you can grow is to listen to the feedback, listen to the commentary, say to yourself, okay, I know what I meant. I know what I intended for people to take away, but they didn't. So what do I have to do to contribute to that takeaway being what I want it to be? So communication is everything. Um, Having said that as a photographic artist or an artist of any type, You've also got the right to say, this is what I want to do. And I don't care if anybody gets it. That's fine, too. It's when (laughs) we go into the commercial world or we go into the world of an award or the world of people buying our work, exhibiting. If people don't buy our work, it's not because they have a problem. It's because they just don't respond to it. That's it. And we can leave it there. Or we can say, I need people to buy my work so I can feed my kids Mm. or feed myself. So what? how do I do that? And that's that dilemma that artists find themselves in. How do I get a return from what I'm doing? So we find many photographers and artists these days earn their living one way and then get the freedom to express another way where yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. So there's probably less full-time photographers or people in the photography industry who earn their living from their photography yeah, the
0: creative photography as opposed yeah. to the comm- even, I, even- I have this sort of mental split in my mind there's commercial stuff and then yeah. there's creative stuff and yeah okay if you're lucky some of the creative stuff will sell but the commercial realm is where the money is made and that's really yeah. where i put most of the focus from a business perspective is into okay how am i progressing there and how am i getting new clients and how am i keeping clients that i've already got happy
1: yeah, I, I one of the greatest satisfactions I get these days is the fact that for the last probably ten years or more, I don't enter awards a lot because I'm fi- I'm often involved in them and I, yeah. it's better. I, sometimes I can't or I just choose not to. But when I'm not involved, sometimes I'll enter it just maybe just to say to the people that I coach and mentor, hey, I can still do it. I'm yeah. still getting. <laughs> but but the thing I get the most satisfaction from is the images that I'm putting into those awards are the very same images that I'm exhibiting as one and two meter pieces in galleries that mm. are selling and going up on walls in private residences, in hotels, in places like that. So yeah. what I'm trying to produce is art that I love, my work, and it goes out there, it's selling and it's getting recognized in my industry when peers look at it and say, yeah, okay, that's worth a pretty high mark. Yeah. So that's a level of satisfaction that I've achieved that I feel pretty blessed. And it it you talked about inspiration earlier it does inspire me what I'm looking for it motivates me to keep trying to produce the work that can do that so it's commercial but it's also getting recognition in other ways
0: yeah I wanted to talk a little bit about that inspiration and how you stay motivated to experiment and try new ideas and new techniques is that something that's really important to you or are you trying to focus on stuff that you know and you Tried and tested techniques that you've used before.
1: Yeah, look, I think it's really important that the first thing I say is that I don't know of anyone who can stay inspired and motivated all the time.
0: Yeah, no, it's Um, it's impossible. Yeah,
1: (laughs) we meet people that look like that, like they're always upbeat. There, but my my experience of working with people and as human beings is that Mm. nobody stays at that level all the time. So. For the listeners out there or the viewers, if they get a chance to see this video, thinking I must be something wrong or whatever because I feel like I haven't got it today or this week or this month, I get that. I get that 100%. I understand that. I can tell you without mentioning names, some of the best photographers in the country that are friends of mine get that. We all have that. And I think it's that rise and fall that's really important to understand that if you try to stay at the top, the pressure that comes from being motivated all the time becomes a debilitating experience in itself so it actually yeah. puts you under pressure and some of our best work and most creative work happens when we almost don't care when we just let go yeah in a more practical way when i did weddings from from very early on to right through to when i stopped i had a 10% rule and i used to tell my clients i said 90% of what i shoot is going to be what you expect this is what yeah. i do this is why you've booked me but 10% of the day mixed through that day, I'm going to try things that may or may not work. I'm not happy to show you what they are. And you might look at them and think, what was he thinking? That's terrible. That's crap. But that's how I keep getting better. But that's how I'll produce something individual for you. And they love that because they become part of a creative process. And creativity by definition is producing something that didn't exist before. So if it hasn't been around before, we haven't seen it before, then or it's pretty hard to produce something completely unique. But we haven't seen it in that form before then mm. we don't know what the response will be so i enjoy watching part of what motivates me is trying things and seeing how people will respond to it will it get a will it get a response will it attract will it resonate yeah i also like sounds creepy i'm a people watcher i like yeah. i, I you know, it's, it's strange because i remember being on a panel with a group of people was actually for a I think it was a, a like a more female type of conference but I was one of the speakers to talk about portraiture and the question was asked to the panel who were introverts and who were extroverts yeah and interestingly enough most of the audience thought that we would all be extroverts because we get on stage and speak but the reality yeah. was five of five out of the six of us were introverts mm-hmm. and I quite like sitting back and observing and just watching things as they interact in the world and then something will jump out at me as being interesting. And I think in terms of being motivated, we can look for external motivation. But one of the areas that I'd encourage people to explore is to give more value to what interests us, to find, to, to trust your curiosity. And go. they talk about going back to being a child. I think children are one of the greatest examples of staying motivated because they remain curious. And the more curious you are, the longer you'll find yourself or the more often you'll find yourself motivated and inspired because it's curiosity that invites us to explore new things. Yeah, it's yeah. curiosity that ex- invites us to find out more about ourselves, more about how our skills and, and our knowledge can be applied to different things. And I, a lot of my early magazine advertising for weddings was inspired and drawn from surfing magazines, not wedding magazines. Yep. I would look at other things and see how I could apply them so if you talk about, there's books like, I think it's Paolo Coelho called The Alchemist. And yep, when we talk yep. about alchemy, where we take two things and put them together in a way that hasn't been put, to, they haven't been put together before to create something new. Yeah. I love that process. I love seeing how that works. And I love applying that to everything I do in life, yeah. even to the point of going home a different way, which might you know, bugs my wife or whoever's in the car, because they'll say, that's the long way. Maybe it is by 33 seconds, but it's different it's got yeah. to stimulate me travelling different ways just for the sake of it inspires and motivates me because i see new things coming across my vision we talk about video and stills and one of the reasons video is so much more dominant in social media is that we're seeing so many frames per second and our brain when nothing changes in front of us it switches off yeah so in terms of being inspired if we continuously put new things in front of us as a process Our brain has to interpret it because as human beings, our brain is a meaning-making machine. Our brain cannot try to make sense of the world. It just can't. So if it stays in the same place, seeing the same things, it can get lazy. It just doesn't need to make sense of it because it's been looking at it and knows what to expect. Mm. But if we forcibly give it new things to interpret, even if it's just walking to the shops in a different way, Then we force it to start going back, getting back into gear and start trying to make sense of the world. And it's when we make sense of the world, we find things. And I think that's the process that inspires me. When we look at other people's work or we listen to other people, other people talk about their work and what inspires them, we start to see things differently. We see through other people's eyes. So one of the things I love talking about in keynotes is a shift in perspective. I think I've got a talk that I've given quite a few times, which is basically titled, a shift in perspective brings new understandings. And that's a little bit about being motivated, that when we move from where we see the world to a new place, we have to reinterpret everything again. And that gets exciting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the the stuff going across your vision changing. And to me, that harks back to that primitive brain that we all have, the amygdala in that's- the middle of the brain. That sits there interpreting looking for threats and the way it does that is through that visual cortex saying something's changed do I need to pay attention to it is it a threat is it not if it's not it's okay you can still gain pleasure out of those changes but it's that primitive brain that's sitting there saying hello something's different (laughs) I need to pay attention (laughs)
1: Yeah, absolutely. Motivation is drawn from the word motor, moving, moving, movement, and exactly. Where if you break it right down, the human being is either stimulated by flight or fight, and and also there's the carrot and the stick principle that we either go towards something that attracts us, we move away from something that we fear. Yeah. So as the world changes, as something's changing, we have to interpret it. Our brain cannot stop itself, but look at it as a basic mechanism. And say, that's interesting, I'm attracted to it, or that's mm. scary, or I'm not sure. I've got it's got warning signs, I'll move away from it. Yeah. And then we start interpreting and moving. And yeah, the brain is problem solving continuously. Absolutely. If we give it problems to solve, of course.
0: One of the other things you touched on was the difficulty of finding something unique. Is there anything unique in landscape photography, in your opinion?
1: <laughs> <laughs> A very close friend of mine, Peter Eastway, will tell you that nothing's. Not, there is nothing unique. And I think he quotes Susan Sontag and some of her, her writings about that. And it's an interesting debate because I maybe it's romantic in me. Grant. I for me, I believe there are things out there that are unique because I can't I don't want to entertain the possibility that it's all been done. Now, yeah, yeah. is that being blinkered? No, I don't think so. I think you know if you go back into if you want to study quantum physics and look into that area, The observer changes things. So When we look at something, it's real, but it's only real for that observer in that moment in time, and it's slightly different real for somebody else. So I think there are lots of unique ways of seeing different things, of seeing the same thing, and I think there's lots of different things that can be expressed in the same way. So often when we say, okay, this is how I would shoot a still life of a mechanical part of a car what if I use that to exact style on a living thing, like a macro of an insect or something? And there's, I see things that come out and are they in general terms unique? No, but when you look at it, you think that's a unique way of presenting it. And that's a unique way of showing it. So there's a part of me that fights back with the argument that if I move, if I go to a beach that's been photographed a thousand times, there will be a place on that beach that I can photograph it from that no one stood on. Yeah. even though it's been done a thousand times so technically speaking it's unique even though the content that i'm looking at has been there and everyone's photographed it it's the way i'm sharing it and presenting it yeah. then when i go into the post-production process there are a million different things i can do there are different ways how much contrast how little contrast the saturation the hue the color balance the sharpness the crop all of these things can change it so if we think of the photograph as a unique item in itself, not just what the photograph is of, but the photograph yep. itself is an item in the world, the physical picture. It's unique in its own way. Yep. We can have people show us pictures of something. And there's in Australia, we have things like Sugarloaf Rock in Southwest WA. You've got the 12 Apostles. You've got Uluru. And you've got the, the Harbour Bridge, the Barrier Reef. We see these things and we see them come across our social media platforms or whatever. And we think, oh, I've seen that a thousand times. But often one comes across, and we go, "Oh, I like that." Yeah. And it's because somebody's found a way to present it that we haven't seen before. So I think therein lies the secret of being unique. And then the other thing I bring into the argument is that, as as interesting or as strange as it sounds, nobody in the there's never been a Grant Swinburne in the past, now or in the future, precisely like you. Yep, and yep. each of us is unique in the universe. And I know I'm not trying to be religious and spiritual, but
2: no, just, I know that is
1: that mm. is a fact. So, if we talk about billions of processes going on that make up just who I am, and then there are seven or eight billion people in the world, mm. the permutations are just uncomprehensible. We can't. So, there's always something unique to do. And yeah, yeah. I know my mate Pete Eastway will say, "Yeah, when you look at it, they look the same." No, there's a <laughs> slight difference. So yeah. yes, I believe there is. And I'm, I think that's one of the motivations I have is pursuing ways of showing things that are different. We, one of the most commonly photographed aerial places in the world these days is Shark Bay.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, it's fascinating to watch people go there for the first time and discover a place that I might've photographed a hundred times. And I know a lot of people have photographed and they they're excited. And mm. I think that's fantastic because Absolutely. they've found something new in their world. And then when we share it to the wider audience, we start to discover, okay, maybe it's not that unique. But it will always remain unique because no one was in that particular part of the air on that particular day with that particular tide and that particular angle of light and that particular wave mechanism happening and that particular – it'll be unique.
0: Yeah. Be unique. Brilliant. (laughs) I like like that concept. (laughs) Where do you see – Things like, uh, I guess, cultural and social perspectives fitting into how we include more people in the landscape photography fraternity. I think one of the, we're a couple of middle aged white males ha- having a chat now, and there's a lot yeah. of them out there with cameras doing, I won't say, like you said, they're doing their own unique thing. How do we foster that? Diversity and inclusion in the field of landscape photography?
1: I think I know where you're heading. Yeah, look, it's a really interesting question because the same principle or discussion comes up when you talk about, for instance, in in putting judging panels together for a competition. Absolutely. And I remember when I was chairman of the Australian Photography Awards with the AIP and we would often get letters saying, and in the one letter, we would get quite quite adamant pe- people saying this is what should happen. You need diversity on your judging panels for, let's say, landscape, whatever. Yep, yep. We need gender mix and we need cultural mix. And I a standalone comment, 100% agree. Then in the same letter, the same person would say, and you need the best people in this genre judging these competitions. Yeah. And standalone context, I agree, 100%. Then they would say, and in order to give the competition value, these you need the best people in this genre entering the competition. And then the fourth pillar of their sort of push would be, and it's important that people who judge these competitions don't enter them because of a conflict of interest. Yeah. And when you put those four things together, they're mutually ex- exclusive. exclusive. Yeah. They're incompatible.
2: Yeah.
1: And the other flip of the coin is we had one year we introduced the birth category to the competition, and we wanted to listen to the general push, which was diversity, so we needed a male or we needed some male on the panel, yep. and I was the only one that really had photographed a birth in our pool of judges at the time. Sure. So I'd done a few births, so I was on the panel, and they had a few complaints because some of the people watching the judging said, "Was he like judging birth? Yeah. What's he got to do with it? So it's a very... It's a very interesting conversation. Yeah. When it comes to actually people doing it, I think we're seeing it, Grant. I've, I'm have i very lucky. One of the things I do a lot of is coaching and mentoring, as you're probably aware. And sure. Sure. three quarters of the people I coach and mentor are female. Yeah. And, you know, while they're not so many of the younger ones, I think the younger ones are coming through. We see it in social media. Yeah. That whole, the influencers who in the early days maybe were quite snapshot artists, but they're becoming very good photographers, a lot of them. yeah. And so we're seeing a better quality of work coming through from a younger di- demographic, from a mixed gender, whatever the gender they identify with is almost irrelevant to me in this, in what we do. It's got mm-hmm. nothing to do with it. So that's yep. not really relevant. But in terms of it's a catch 22, we used to get an argument within the AIP where people would say the AIP is made up of all these middle-aged white guys with beards. oh, But the reality was three-quarters of the membership were female and yeah. the half or two-thirds of the board was female and the president was female. So I think there's a carryover mentality which doesn't necessarily match the reality. Yeah, the perception I- doesn't
0: I- always match what... No, what, and I uh-huh. think
1: yeah. people are commenting on things without actually looking into it because... Yeah. I may be naive. I hope not, but I do see way more. I talk at camera clubs a lot. Do a lot in the camera clubs and things like that. And there is a lot of female influence coming through. And I got mm. to say, the it's interesting because this is being this is profiling at the at the worst. But often in a camera club, you'll find the men are more historically, particularly the older guys, tend to have a focus on the equipment and gear. Yep. And the ladies come in and they have more of a focus on the aesthetic and the creativity.
2: Yeah. But
1: what's really nice is the respect is starting to go across from both. And we're seeing that influence of the female side coming through in the male side. And all of us, male, female or other, we all have a female and a male side to us.
2: Yeah.
1: And if you want to go down that road of philosophy, it's the masculine side of us that determines the problem solving of how to do it. And it's the feminine side of us that determines why and what it is we want to do. So mm. creativity relies on both a feminine and a masculine input in order to be successful. And you know, I quite happily, I've got daughters and I love the way they see the world. Yep. I love watching how a lady using her femininity approaches landscape, the softness of it, the esoteric mm. of it, the aesthetics of it. But I also enjoy sitting down with the white grey bearded group, who, the guys, the older guys who've been caught up in the gear game for 30 years, because if you've got a problem to solve when it comes to gear, they're the guys with the answers. Yeah. yeah. So not saying that I haven't met ladies who are technically fantastic, because I'm not a technical guru. And you know, I go to the Peter Esways and people like that for me. But there are ladies I've met who are technically way ahead of me. Yeah. But I've also met ladies who are caught up in that technical side and when they struggle to produce, <coughs> excuse me, work that's creative and uh, inspiring, it's because they haven't tapped into that soft esoteric side. So I think it's a blend of, it's a blend of it all, and it needs to come through all of us as well as it is to be seen in the environment. But I think it's coming, and I think it's if you look out there, you'll see it. I do. Yeah.
0: One of the other things, I mean, it's I guess it's slightly less of an issue from a, an aerial photography perspective, but one of the other things that I've seen. In the industry and with landscape photographers in particular is thinking about some of the ethical considerations with indigenous sacred lands and how people approach those subjects and how people can actually approach them with respect and sensitivity have you got anything to say on that regard
1: yeah i think you talked to me earlier we are we talked about communication and the value of it and i think Mm. The two words I would say when we start talking about these areas are communication and respect. I think they have to be at the forefront of what you do. A guy I've worked alongside of, very talented, photographic artist, mixed media artist, guy called Clayton Hares, really interesting guy, South African descent. And he has done some work in the area of Indigenous occasions to explore his work and what he does but he'll always he goes in and he'll talk to the people involved he'll talk to the elders that he'll talk to the group that's responsible for that land and he'll explain what he's doing and why and look for permissions and I think it's about respect and it's about communication and trying to understand the funny thing is Grant if you do that you're a long way down the track towards producing a far better expression of whatever it is you're trying to shoot anyway. Absolutely. Because the more we understand about what it is we're photographing, the better chance we've got of expressing those hidden elements and those layers of meaning Mm. that we probably want to capture in the first place. Otherwise, we're a bit ignorant. Saying that, there are people who want to go in without having any of that bias. I get that as well. And perhaps that can be part of the conversation. I'd like to photograph this. I respect but don't want to be biased by those stories that's fine yeah, too yeah. it's just i think transparency communication and underneath all of that in all things respect just respect the people even if you don't even if you don't understand or value what they what their belief is yep i think you still should respect that they have the right to have those beliefs In the same way that each of us want people to respect the way we want things done or what we think is important. If we want that, it has to be reciprocal. Communication and respect.
0: Definitely. I want to move on to some of the business side of things. You do quite a lot of workshops. How did you get started in that? Was it just a way of helping pay the bills or was it something more motivational about sharing knowledge and so forth?
1: I strangely enough I think it's always been me I'm the oldest child of an oldest child I grew up I was born in Malaysia and I went to six different schools in the first seven years of school Uh what I'm trying to say is I had a foundation that was instinctive or inherent in me from early years of having to connect and build rapport and learn to um, adapt yep and Consequently, as an oldest child, and with those background, that background, I found myself in sporting teams, I would be the captain or the coach or both. If I as a young adult, I would be involved in boards, I'd get onto committees, and I'd always end up as managing the committee or something like that. So leadership roles were something that was quite inherently inherent to me.
2: Yep.
1: And being the oldest child and the oldest grandchild with a big family, I was always in charge of or responsible for or um, empowered to pass on to other people. So it was just part of who I am. And then back in, gosh, 1995, the Australian Professional Awards and the New Zealand Professional Award Systems had a process where after their awards, they would select the top 20 images from each country, put them in a competition, which was judged, and there would be points given, and one country would win what was effectively a photography Anzac Truck Cup. It was called the the Trans-Tasman Cup. And there was the Trans-Tasman Trophy, which went to the high-scoring print of that little competition. And in 1995, I won that competition. And winning that competition got me a trip to the other country, which for me would be New Zealand, to go to their conference the following year and to be a speaker. And I went over and spoke. And up until that point, I'd done some other training. I used to teach, as I said, communication and rapport and things like that. And I went and spoke, and they invited me back, word of mouth, people said, "Oh that was really good. Can you come and talk here?" And so things started. So I started doing a lot of talking way back then.
2: yeah, and yeah. then
1: that became people approaching me saying, "Do you do any one-on-one coaching and things like that?" And it basically evolved to these days to this day where, it started taking up so much of my time and I probably spend, I would say 30 to 40% of my time mentoring, coaching, not all pay. Camera clubs is more of a pro bono thing for most of yeah. us. Some of the areas that I go to conferences, they're not paying you. They might cover your costs, but you're giving back. And I've, I am where I am because of the people that shared their knowledge with me mm. through the years. And as a result, I think it's respons- it's a responsibility for me to be giving that back. And I've tried to do that for a long time. But at the same time, I've got to the point where it becomes part of what I do as I get older is sharing that knowledge in a more professional way. So I have a mastermind group, which I run every year, and that's now in its sixth year. It's only six people and there's a waiting list for it, which is great. It's not a big waiting list. Usually there's one or two halfway through the year for next year. And then when people drop off because they have the choice to stay on it, then new people can come in. But I also have one-on-one mentoring with people from Europe, America, Africa, and Australia, of course, which will be anything from a couple of sessions to a nine-month program. And it's not about teaching Photoshop and it's not about teaching lighting and posing. That will come into our conversations. But it's more about helping to uncover what it is that people love about photography, what it is they're trying to get out of it. It's about fostering confidence Helping them find their lane, what what they want out of photography. For a lot of the people I work with, they're prosumers at best. So they're not looking to this to be putting bread on the table.
2: Yeah,
1: It's an outlet. It's there. And they've invested 10, 20, 30, maybe as much as 100 grand in camera gear or yeah. more. To invest in a bit of education is something they want to do. So then you've got the conferences. And I've done a lot of conferences over the year and hosted many of them. For a long time now, since since the 1990s, I hosted conferences. And I love being involved in a process that brings people together for community, for networking, for sharing. That involves professionals or experts or people with experience being on stage and sharing the knowledge. That involves people processing that and discovering that there's another step they can take. And then helping coordinate all that, bring it all together. Yeah. It's just been an evolution, I think, of but it's been I, I hinted earlier that for me, my art is about mathematics, poetry, music, and visuals all coming together. That's what my photography is about. Yeah. In this and that's that is an expression of who I am as a person and I've always been. Mm. I was very good at maths and science at school, physics. But the same with speaking, I think it becomes an evolution that you're doing this because it's something you, that's part of who you are. Yeah, you bring in, you're connecting people from a part of the industry to others who are interested in that part of the industry
2: yeah.
1: and you're bringing them together. So that's just who I am. I'll keep doing it as long as people want me to keep teaching and sharing. And and I love poking. I love, I love giving people a conundrum. Like on stage, there's nothing I love more than to throw a question to the audience that I know they can't answer instantly. That's going to force them to rethink the norm, rethink the way they're looking at their photography and go away. And often say to people, my goal in this hour or this hour and a half or this half day workshop is to pick you up, turn you upside down, shake the crap out of you, put you back on your feet and send you out the door in a way that's going to, sorry about that, in a way that's going to get you to rethink what you're doing and maybe find a way to do it differently and maybe even better.
0: Fantastic what's one of the most important things to remember in terms of promoting your personal brand for somebody that's just starting out in the industry and trying to build a business out of this?
1: I think consistency Mm -hmm. is important. If we jump around all over the place, people don't know what we represent or what we do. I think stand behind it. This is what I do. And I said earlier about awards and exhibitions and if people don't buy it, then it's up to you. A lot of artists start off and spend many years where people don't really like their work and people are ahead of your time or whatever. I think it's about being consistent. So people get used to the fact that's what you do and they start to fall in love with it or they start to understand it or it stands out as being different because it's consistent. Yeah. So consistency of message. And the other thing I think is important that and I learned this through the business earlier with Portrait Weddings. You are your business in our world, in our industry. You are your business. Um, Absolutely. How you present all the time. So you can't be nice to a client that comes to your business or comes to your exhibition during the exhibition time when you're on the job and you're dressed up, you're looking trendy or whatever it is your thing, and then they see you down the beach of the shop and you're rude and you're dismissive. It's just part of it. You. They say with sports people, particularly sports people, they get paid a lot of money, but there's a responsibility with that. When they're in the street, if a little kid comes up to an AFL footballer and he's rude, I think that's where we have a problem because yeah. you're always going to be your brand. And particularly as an image maker, I think that's important. So I'd like to think that when people come across me in outside of a conference or an exhibition or on the job and they bump into me somewhere, that I'm as approachable and I'm the same person that they can hear and see today. If I'm in a, overseas and I remembered being in Spain on a family holiday, and of course I had my camera, and I was photographing in a river in the south of Spain, the bridge, and I forget the name of it. It's the big bridge with the arches that features in one of the James Bond movies. Yeah. Where yeah. Daniel Craig jumps off the train. So I'm in this river and there's a cafe and everything. And I'm standing in the middle of the river and I'm about a hundred meters from the cafe and all these tourists. And out of the blue, I hear this, Tony Hewitt. And I turn around, I think, what? And this guy comes, he's Tony Hewitt. He says, You were speaking at our camera clubs about six months ago. You won't remember me. (laughs) And we had a chat and that, and he says, Oh, he said, it was so good to see you there. And I remembered someone said to me later when I was at another camera club. Yeah. So I was talking to somebody and they said they saw you in Spain. And they said, and you were just the same as you were when they came when you came to the camera club. (laughs) And I think when we talk about our brand, that's part of it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Clothing what you speak, what you wear, all of that. Yeah, look, if you talk to someone who's in brand management, they'll say that everything you do is going to contribute to it. And I think that's important, but don't have to go overboard. I'm who I am. And I think the other thing is don't fall into the trap of trying to be something you're not. Yeah. Don't try to profess to be an expert in areas that you're not. I often get people in in coaching or even when I'm on stage, whatever, ask questions technically. And I reach my limit and I say, look, I don't have the answer for that. And there'll be yeah. even, I've even been in quite, not, they used to be uncomfortable, now I'm more humorous, where people would suddenly take pride in being able to tell the audience what I don't know. And I think my answer I've learned over the years is that if you like what I do, and if you've stood in front of my pictures and you think they're great, yep, and you don't have to, but if you do, then I got there with what I know. What I didn't know, didn't matter because I got there with what I know and here's what I know.
2: Yeah.
1: And sure. there are other ways to get there and I can help you find those people. If you want to know, if it comes to color management at the highest level, I'm not the color management guru. I know enough to do what I do, yeah. but I'll send you to the Les Walklings, the Dr. Les Walklings or the Ian Vanderwolds or the Rocco Ancoras and people like that. If you want to know all about different camera systems and camera gear, I'm not the guy. But yeah. I know a little bit. Here's what I know, and if you need more, here's who to go to. Go and look at a Peter Eastway. Go and look at a Landscape Photography World podcast where you've probably had a guest on who's yeah. really good at that. That's <laughs> what I'll do. So don't be any. Don't try to be something you're not. But be proud of what you do know. And remember, if people have come to you because of something they admire about what you do, then you did it with what you already know. That's it. Be proud of that. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Great advice one of the things i like to ask the photographers i talk to is where that nexus between place technique and subject sort of crossover and have you found that where you live has influenced how and what you shoot worldwide when you take that overseas or do you find the technique or the way that you take the photos is the primary thing that's driving the way that you shoot or how you shoot
1: yeah i think over the rightly or wrongly over the years i've started to understand that if i get too concerned with how important the technique is i go off track because it's not i'm not about technique yep what's behind my image making is relevant whether i'm in a plane over Shark Bay, or looking at a red desert, or standing in a mountain range, mm. or looking at snow. Yeah. I think for me, it's about trying to create a physical representation or a visual representation in the physical world of my feelings about what I'm going through when I'm in a new when, when I'm in an environment. Yeah. You know, it, my wife loves to go down to the beach and sunset. Yep, And sometimes when she says, oh, we should go down tonight, it'll be good. And I thought, I must admit, I've, I'm a little demotivated. I'm not as motivated because the sunset itself doesn't inspire me. But if I go with her, and often we do because you're so enthusiastic about it, and she'll be down there taking pictures and I get inspired. And But my process will cut in, my process, not the process of photographing a sunset, sure, but sure. my exploration of things. Because where I live in... Look, I think it does to a degree because I live in Western Australia. For those overseas who don't know Perth, it's the most isolated capital city in the world. The climate is very much Mediterranean, California, if you like, for the Europe and North American people. Temperate climate. We've got no snow in this country. I think about once every four years we get half an inch of snow on a one mountain, which is five hours from Perth, which is a mountain that is only about 4,000 feet high. So it's not really a mountain. And people drive their kids all through the night just to show them the bit of snow. So when I go to somewhere like Middlehurst Station in New Zealand where we run our retreats every year, that is in winter and we'll get three feet of snow overnight and things like that or go to Iceland or North America and travel through some of the, the parks and things. Yeah, there's a uniqueness. There's something different. And I think that's for all of us. And that's one way to force inspiration is just to go somewhere you've never been before. Travel. Just travel for travel's sake to see something different. And does where I live influence that? I think it has to because this is what we normally are used to and this is different. Yeah. Interestingly, the more you go somewhere, so the inspirations I get from Middlehurst because we've run that retreat now for seven years in a row, or North America where I've been many times, that inspiration shifts because now it's becoming a little more like my backyard. Yeah. so I'm not getting that impact of this is entirely different. Wow, the first time I saw snow in England was to pull over in the car because it's snowing, jump out and throw snowballs because you can, even though I was an adult. These days you just it's slushy and you've got to get there safely. Yeah, yeah, I think it does. But I think the fact that we, if we, as I said, I can still force myself to go to the shop in a different way. Yeah. I can take a different way home, even if Google Maps tells me it's going to take three and a half minutes longer. Yeah. Really, am I? That's that three and a half minutes invested in seeing something I wouldn't have saw, seen versus an extra three and a half minutes at home watching a movie or yeah. Yeah. sitting at home. Use your time. Think about it. Maybe yeah. that little longer trip is just the way to do it. Yeah, yeah. No. I don't know if I answered the question. I've got off time. Yeah, no,
0: you certainly did in my mind. <laughs> yeah i hope i asked it in a way that you understood it
1: (laughs) yeah no i yeah i think i know where you were coming from yeah travel in itself and just we touched on it several times before that we don't we have always got control over what's happening every minute i know people say i know i have it on the work or whatever yeah but you could choose to go to work by riding your bike instead of exactly i had a, a guy that was in one of our groups and one of our mastermind programs and he he was looking for a project because part of what I do is encourage projects and he didn't have time so I don't have time I said how do you get tell me about your day he says I ride to work and I said riding to work take your camera take a small camera use your phone and Mm -hmm. when you're riding to work make a point of on the way to work and on the way home take one picture or on the way to work look at locations and on the way home take a picture of it another gentleman who's a pilot also had a problem had challenges around time and I and he said but sometimes in the plane in the cockpit because he's a commercial pilot not jumbos and that private things you often you're an autopilot because you're in a four-hour flight five-hour flight and you're just sitting there looking around I said show me what it looks like from the cockpit so he created this whole series around what he saw from his cockpit yeah, right? yeah. I think we can find things it doesn't have to be all that glamour yeah it's great to look at social media and Billy Bob's just come back from Greenland and he's off to Iceland and such Is going to Patagonia and somebody's in Atacama Desert and yeah. somebody's just been trekking through Nigeria or maybe not Nigeria these days, but been to Antarctica and we get a bit of FOMO. and I do too. I look and go, oh, damn, that's one place I haven't been. I'd love to go there. Yeah, But we can still find difference, differences close to home. We really Absolutely. can. Yeah. We can push that.
0: Speaking about worldwide, have you got a favourite place that you keep getting called back to that just says, I've got to be there?
1: Yeah, it's not as far away as people might think. I love New Zealand. Sugarloaf rock? (laughs) I think I've photographed Sugarloaf rock twice in my life. It's the same as the blue boat shed. I've never actually photographed the blue boat shed.
0: Have you not? Okay. uh, I've done it. (laughs) It's
1: literally 12 minutes from me. I just, yeah, yeah, I just, and I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just the same way if I go to Sydney, I'm fascinated by the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I'll take pictures of them driving under it. Yeah. But I just love New Zealand. I think I like the fact that it's, you can drive and not see many people. It's very, it's sparse. It's one of the most beautiful countries I've ever been to. And I haven't been everywhere, but it's certainly one of the most beautiful. It's safe you're not worried about other things i think that's part of it not that i'm overly worried about traveling to places but yeah look i think there's i think when you talk about where would you revisit it's more about places i haven't been that probably because the idea of going somewhere new is going to stimulate new thoughts and new processes sure, sure. and new ideas i'm off to greece i haven't been to greece okay and uh, And I'm going to Greece in September with Nick Maladonis, who's been in the landscape game for a long time. Nick's Greek. He's been going there for 20 years and he invited me to come along with him for a year, which is fantastic to be able to go through Greece on a workshop or like a photo tour with another guy who knows it, who speaks Greek. But that's not going to be very few people and sparse landscapes. That's going to be people and old ruins and things like that, a different experience. But yeah. I certainly, and I haven't been to Bolivia and some of the okay. things there. And that yeah. twice I was set up and COVID was one that got in the way. And a few years back, I couldn't go at the last, we had to change plans. So that's still on my hit list. But then again, like I said, Peter Eastway and I go to Middlehurst. I'm not trying to plug it, but we go there every go year <laughs> and we run a retreat there. And I love going back there because each time I go back there, I discover another layer yeah. So I think there's two things that attract me. One is new places and one is going to the places that I've enjoyed in the past because I'll go and find a new layer,
2: Yeah.
1: a new layer to that place that I didn't see before, and that becomes even more pertinent when you talk about what's close to home. When you do travel a bit, you come home and then you become appreciate what's in your backyard more as well. Absolutely. And the other place that I'll always love going to is Shark Bay. I could yeah. never tire of flying over the the waters of Shark Bay because it's just so incredibly beautiful
0: yeah. in so
1: many different diverse ways.
0: Fantastic. You've obviously got a lot of memorable experiences over the years. Have you had any horror stories, things that you've gone, "Do that was a shocker? <laughs> I shouldn't have gone there or <laughs> I wish, I wish no, I'd caught the camera.
1: <laughs> there's... Look, if I dip into the wedding experiences, I had a couple of wedding experiences, but that's a whole different type of conversation. Sure. So, In terms of landscape and travel, I think, oh gosh, I can't actually think of anything that was like incredibly bad. I'm, we've been, Pete and I do often do America road trips and we've done a lot of the Northwest area, everywhere from San Fran, LA, through the, all the parks up to Yellowstone, all of that, and yep. variations. And I know we've a couple of times where we've been in blizzards and couldn't travel where we wanted to and had to backtrack and it's 3 o'clock in the morning and we're having to put snow chains on and it's minus 10. And you're thinking, what am I doing here? But there's a part of you that's going, what am I doing here? This is fantastic.
2: Yeah. yeah. So
1: I can't say they're horror stories. I've been lucky, touch wood, not to smash gear or anything, but I've had people on trips break phase ones, drop them on rocks or into water. that's an expensive drop yeah (coughs) it is when it's not insured and just watching them for the next week it's the second day of a 12-day tour yeah and that that's it's more those things where people are having a bad experience rather than me because i i think i'm i don't know i'll have a good experience no matter where i am just the fact that the world's different i'm alive i woke up above the ground not below it means it's a good day Absolutely. And, uh, geez, Grant, why would I complain? My, my office is anywhere <laughs> in the world sometimes. My, I've never had the same day twice yeah. in my working experience. I get to give people aha moments. I get to take them places that I've seen many times, but they see for the first time. I love watching people's faces when they see the Grand Canyon for the first time. And I don't mean from a distance. It's when they walk to the edge and look into it and go, holy. Like it's. I love that experience. I love watching people in aircraft for the first time when they get up there and the adrenaline's bursting out of them and they're nervous and then they look down and take their first picture and then they come back and sit in the restaurant or sit in wherever we are and look at their pictures on their laptop and suddenly realise that there's a whole world that they can share with others. So horror stories, no, getting scared, yeah, a couple of places, a little nervous, but no, I'm sorry, I can't.
0: That's okay. I can't. Uh, it's great that someone's having a great time all the time. <laughs>
1: look, there, I suppose there are. Th- 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 look, there are people that get on your nerves. We have oh, yeah. a group of twelve people. There'll always be personality clashes. So there's always going to be something when you're traveling with with people that you. There's all those experiences, but I think that's part of it. Yeah, it's part of definitely. it builds tolerance. Yeah, I've had experiences where I've shot things, and I'll be there as the instructor, and it's aerial, and Tony's supposed to be pretty good at aerial and i come back and all of my shots are out of focus i've had that mm-hmm. experience particularly when this that particular experience was we used to tape our lenses a lot oh and yeah. uh, and someone and i'd have people come up to me before we're getting in can you take can you check my lenses and i'd be checking everybody's gear and then we'd jump in the helicopter and i quickly set mine and ta- tape it and if you put it out by 1 mil, mm, then it's
2: out yeah and on
1: a medium format camera you don't have a lot of uh, scope you know? no yeah. and suddenly uh, I come back and everyone's excited and they're looking at theirs and you'll be hearing comments. Can't wait to see what Tony got. And I'm going through going, holy crap. So you got to own up.
0: i got nothing. And fess
1: up. <laughs> that, Yeah, guys, I blew it. But I, look, even saying that on that occasion and sometimes when I've lost a couple of things, people, you can see their face like, God, it even happens to people like that.
0: Yeah, that's
1: it. That's it. FIC, the, the project I went around Australia with a colleague, that was that had a couple of moments which were interesting. So mm. I think that's part and parcel of what you do, but it's part of what makes you stronger. The problem solving kicks in, inspiration comes from the opportunity to do something different, I think. And often when we're challenged, that's when we find ways to do things different.
0: Yeah, fantastic. What do you see as being the biggest challenge facing landscape photographers right now?
1: I, I think the obvious answer would be AI.
0: There's been a lot of discussions on this podcast about AI and different opinions about how it will impact things. I think there's obviously the ethical consideration of somebody posting images on social media and pretending they're photography when they're not. But beyond that, I think there's definitely that scope for it eating into some areas of commercial photography in particular.
1: Look, I think it's I think it's going to change it. Yeah. It'll, it, it's going to change things, but then digital changed things. This is true. Uh, and even the traditional DSLS film camera changed things. We went from having to paint emulsion onto glass plates to yeah. you didn't have to do that anymore. So it changed things. So things will change, no question. How photography is perceived will change, but that's also happened several times in the past. It will have impact on things like competitions and stuff. And I was on a call last night, a group call, where that conversation came up, it was about judging of competitions. And yeah, it will change things because in a competition, if you think about, if we think about when we assess photography, or we judge it yeah. and look at competitions. We can either judge the image, the final print, here is a print. And if we're saying, all I want you to do is judge the print, that's got nothing. It doesn't matter how it got there. That's what we're judging. But if we're judging the process, Or the craft or the expertise of the photographer or the person who created the image. Yeah. Then we say, okay, are we are we rewarding a computer or an algorithm or are we rewarding somebody's brain? Yeah. The reality is we've got more AI happening now that people realize or than than they actually sometimes think about. Yeah. And when people go out and say, I did it all in camera, so it's natural, I laugh and I say, No, you're using more AI than I'm using. Because a lot of the processes are taken out of your hands and your computer camera is doing it, it for you. Exactly. And now you're you're putting it forward as being more mechanical and natural. You're, you're letting no, Canon
0: or Nikon or Fuji or whoever it is that you less manufactured. You're using more decision. AI
1: than I'm using. That's right. That's so right. I think it's already there. And one of the things I, and I'm not saying I'm right, but one of the thought processes that I've been going through and having discussions with people around is if we go back 50 or 60 years, Then when we recognized photographers for their skill, we were recognizing their ability to mechanically use the equipment. Absolutely. How technically good can you get it? Mm. And aesthetics came into it, but it wasn't really as valued as the technical expertise. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: And then we moved into where the cameras took away a lot of that burden and a lot of that responsibility. Yeah. We then started getting into the aesthetic of the image, the editing ability, the expression, Mm -hmm. the expression of the score. As Ansel Adams was once quoted as saying, the negative is the score and the print is the performance. So we yeah. went from recognising the score and the ability to write the music, if you like, or to produce yeah. that, into how do you express it? Yeah. Now, your print, how did you print it? How did you choose to dodge and burn and all of those things? And then digital was an evolution of that where editing skills was what we we're recognising and a lot of the argument and the complaints around things like AIP competitions a lot of photography print competitions where that we were starting to recognize digit, graphic design digital, art, digital graphic art. art
2: yeah
1: but digital art was an extension of photography it was absolutely. hey we can do it so let's do it and in, even the Ansel Adams of the day would have done it if they could have
0: absolutely yeah
1: so i looked at that and i thought okay if we were there and we're here where are we going next and i feel like part of the skill set that will be more widely recognised and valued is curation because if we have these algorithms that are producing all of these these options and these versions and these permutations, do you have the skill to recognise the ones that are good versus the ones that aren't? Yeah. Can you recognise the ones that an audience will respond to versus the ones that won't respond? Yeah. Yeah. And I think curatorial skills will start to become more important. Because we do that now when you try to produce an exhibition or a book or even enter a competition, you sit down with a collection or a selection of work and your job is to go, okay, which ones are going to get the best response, which ones will work, which ones talk to each other, I'm putting together an exhibition or an essay of work, which ones connect best, that's curatorial skill, that's the ability to find narrative, to find connection. So. I've heard somebody talking on a I don't know it was actually on the TV last night the back end of somebody on the project I think it might have been and he was t- okay it must have been about AI and he was talking about soul and almost like AI can't produce the mistakes can AI yeah. produce the humanity and how do we keep the humanity in our image making because it's in the mistakes and the Japanese have an art and I've forgotten the name of it but it's where they break a break a ceramic bowl and put it back together using gold or platinum Yep. Or silver and that becomes more valuable because it's broken and put together. Yeah, and I think it's things like that that when we look at art, can we see the humanity? Can we see the individual expression of a person coming through that work that's going to help it elevate it above AI?
2: Absolutely, but we're
1: also going to learn to incorporate AI in our work. And I think, in the same way that when digital camera or DSLR cam- cameras took over the mechanics and took the responsibility away, we could get more invested in the ability to see and find narrative Mm -hmm. in the same way that the digital editing process took away the post-production problems and gave us the opportunity to produce more technically correct images, we could focus more on narrative and emotional content. I think as AI comes in, it's going to take away some of the more predictable areas and allow us to explore and become better at the unpredictable and hidden layers that we sometimes stumble on as photographers. And yeah. if we're if we're lucky enough or work hard enough, become good at being able to actually create with intent. That's where I'm at, right? For yeah. me, my art, yeah. I'm trying to create emotive, evocative images and pieces intentionally, and it's not yeah. easy. No. that's what I'm trying to do. And if no. AI can help me do that but still have my stamp and my signature on them, then maybe it's not a bad thing. Maybe not. I don't know. Interesting where we're going.
0: What do you like to do when you're not out shooting?
1: What do I like to do when I'm not out shooting? You mean out of photography? Yeah. Like Okay, I have three absolutely beautiful grandkids, mm-hmm. five-year-old or five-and-a-half, four-year-old and a nine-month-old. The two oldest boys who keep me on my toes, keep everyone on their toes. They are full bore. I love spending time with them because yeah. And my other passion is the beach. Yeah. Being my my catch cry, my elevator pitch when someone says, What's your passion built around? It's this. I love the I, I love to witness the dance between the water and the light.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Water and light and the ever-changing variations of it. Now, if I can bring spend time with my grandkids down the beach and watch my four-year-old grandson run running down the beach, jumping, splashing, creating, digging, that just takes me back to the fact that the world is a wonderful place. So yeah. that's what I love to do. I love to explore new ideas. I love listening to podcasts. I love exploring the science of human ex- excellence. Yep. People like Stephen Kotler, The Rise of Superman, Greg Braden, who is a spiritualist and philosopher and physicist. I did physics at uni, so I've got that science background. I love music, absolutely adore music. Just went to a Led Zeppelin concert, which was obviously not the original band, but it had the original band, Drummer's Son, who runs it. Okay, yep. And absolutely brilliant two hours of Led Zeppelin music, which is from the 70s and 80s. But I love listening to Ed Sheeran. I love any music. I was a DJ for seven years when I was young.
2: Yeah.
1: So that music thing... And putting music and visuals and experiences together. So I'm writing books. Obviously, there was a Girt by Sea project book. And I'm doing a book on for my grandkids, which is about built around exploration and adventure and finding the best in yourself. I'm also been working on a book for a few years now, but it's coming close to finish. And that is a book on my aerial philosophy and work, which I can't wait to finish. Because, But as I get closer, there's more things I want to put into it, which is a challenge. So yeah, anything like that, and I love watching sport. I'm a sports nut, absolute sports nut. A Manchester United fan. I like skateboarding, but I'm not as good as Ian Vanderwold, and I'm certainly not as good as the (laughs) young ones. And I have to say that one of the things I love, which is part of my industry but not, is travel and meeting and interacting with my friends from different countries, whether it's online or preferably in person. So I've got a lot of friends overseas these days, and. I just love sitting down with them in not in busy places. To give you an insight into what I like to do, I often, when I'm in Vegas for conferences or places like that, I like going to a piano bar with just okay. a small group of people and just yep. sitting, listening to the music. Nice. And having a quiet drink. So anything like that, I think that inspires and brings new ideas and thoughts and people watching, right? yeah. people watching. But yeah, keeping fit, eating cool. well, all that.
0: Who else should I be talking to on the podcast? Are there any particular? Well, I'm going to copies? confess
1: I can't recall everyone you've had, so I may come up with people you've No, that's that
0: okay. If you and do, I, I have it.
1: to ask you the question: Is it purely landscape?
0: It's called Landscape Photography World, so mm. I, it, it'd probably be a bit weird having too many portrait photographers sure, or wedding sure. photographers on.
1: Have you had Steve Gosling on?
0: No, I haven't had Steve. He's from England. Yep,
1: absolute gentleman. I'm guessing you've had Pete Eastway on.
0: No, I haven't. He's on the list. I haven't asked him yet, but uh, yeah, look, I think Pete's going to hit him up. Pete's
1: one of the old school, but yeah. there's not much Pete hasn't seen and hasn't done. And no. I think the thing I love about Peter is he brings such a broad background of experience mm. in terms of publishing books, travel, and of course landscape. It's interesting we didn't talk much about competitions. That background in understanding, and not competitions for the ego side and all of that, but for the growth side, for the challenging yeah. yourself. You yeah. know, we both have a strong passion in helping people challenge themselves. Christian Fletcher's an obvious one if you haven't had him. There's some, there's all the young guns. I think you've had Mika Boynton on.
0: Yep, I have Mika. Yeah, on.
1: when I say young guns, younger than me. <laughs> yeah, look, there's some guys who aren't pure landscape. They're more commercial, but so they probably don't fit. There's a guy in America which be in I don't know what he'd be like, but he'd be he's old school. But mm-hmm. like a guy called Ken Skloot.
0: Okay, can't say I've heard of him yet.
1: Yeah, really does some interesting. Have a look, check it out, and you'll see his work, and you'll know if you like it. Mm. If you want, are you looking for people established or up people new and?
0: I'm looking for people right across the spectrum. I've spoken to people with interesting work, but very much at the beginning of their careers through to people that have been in, in the industry for 30 odd years. So anywhere in between, I'm looking first and foremost for the quality of the work. Does it engage me? and if it does, then I'm more likely to ask someone. But so that that work quality is first and foremost. but in terms of where they are in the industry or where they are in terms of their careers or whatever, I've had hobbyists, I've had professionals. and so
1: have you had Chris Saunders? No, I haven't had Chris yet. Uh, Chris is he's, he's, a, he's a, another gentleman, absolute gentleman and exquisite really? printer. Good obviously aerial fine arts, one of his mainstays. But yeah, yeah, he's a lovely guy. Jordan Cantello. Yep. Jordan Cantello, sorry. Have you had Jordan?
0: No, I haven't had him on yet.
1: Oh look, he's amazing. He does a lot of the lightning storms, but he's he's he works with the fire, he's a fireman. Works okay. at, he does, yep. in the aerial area, like he does a lot of fire. When there's fires, he's in the air overseen yeah, yep absolutely bonzo bloke top guy yeah. and great photographer i'd be chasing jordan all right because he's right smack in it. he's got a, quite a niche area that he's well known for yeah thanks uh, for so that definitely go for jordan clayton hairs be an interesting conversation for you he's a photographer but he's also mixed media like he finishes yeah, yeah. how he finishes his work is quite interesting so have a look at clayton as well mm. have you had jackie rankin
0: no not yet
1: talk to jackie uh, she's in New Zealand. She lives in Whaite Central South Island. Uh, Jackie is a does a lot of black and white, edgy landscape stuff. So definitely Jackie and her partner is Mike Langford. But either of those. But Jackie, I think Jackie having some ladies on is a good thing.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm always looking. There's always... a
1: few for you, but yeah no, that, a lot that's out there.
0: brilliant, mate. Thank you, yeah. thank you.
1: Yeah.
0: I've got one more question for you, and for huh? many of the listeners, it's the most important one I ask because okay. it's a very, yeah, it's a very deep and dark part yeah, of sure. the photography world. Yeah, like what's my favorite drink pizza? or something? Is it? No, do you <laughs> like pineapple on pizza?
2: <laughs> yes.
0: Good. <laughs> <laughs> good question yeah, there's some people that are very against it and i can't understand that myself but
1: diversity is the spice of life
0: absolutely yeah. <laughs> all right it's been really fantastic having you on the show today tony and thank you for spending some time with us letting us into your world a little bit where can people find your work
1: instagram is tony.hewitt so that's one place or www.tonyhewitt.com, easy. You'll see everything on there from what we've been exhibiting and showing and selling to all the workshops and experiences that I offer in terms of whether it's mentoring one-on-one or mastermind group or joining myself or myself and one of my mates or other photographers on a workshop tour, something like that. Brilliant. Uh, or just send an email, have a chat.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Tony.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks again for listening to Landscape Photography World. I hope you enjoyed the show and keep listening because I'll be joined by some great guests in upcoming episodes. You can find my work in this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com. I'm also on Vero, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram and Facebook. If you're interested in buying prints or photography gear or doing a photo workshop with me, these are now on sale on my website. I'm Grant Swinburne. Hope to see you out shooting soon.